0: The Business of Being Brilliant, where I explore the human side of work. I talk to business leaders, academics, authors, workplace experts, and other professionals about when they've worked at their best and when they floundered. We find out how to change organisations for the better so that everyone can flourish. I'm your host, Helen Beedham, organisational expert, speaker, and author of the business book, The Future of Time. How Reworking Time Can Help You Boost Productivity, Diversity and Well-Being. The book launches on the 28th of February. In this first series, my guests and I delve into the question of how we manage our time at work. From coping with time pressure to reclaiming time for the things that really matter, join us for a dose of honesty and positivity to help you and your organisation succeed. You can catch the podcast on all major podcasting platforms, on YouTube, and on my website at helenbeedham.com, where you'll also find the show notes. I'd love to hear your views too. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram at Helen J. Beedham and on Twitter at Helen Beedham. Now, let's crack on with this week's episode. Welcome to this very first episode of the podcast. How has January been for you? If you made some New Year's resolutions, how are those going as now we're edging into February? Even if you hate the whole idea of a New Year's resolution, like my husband does, is there something you do want to change or improve in your work life or home life over the coming months? Maybe it's to hold on to or improve your work-life balance as we start to head back into offices more or simply to make time for the things that are more important to you whatever those may be. So I've decided I want to make more time in my day for reading. So I've set myself a challenge to read 50 books in 52 weeks in 2022. Why not join me and reclaim time to read? I'm alternating business and other non-fiction with fiction books, and I'm starting a new one every Monday. This week, I'm reading Half of a Yellow Sun, the novel by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And the full list is on my website at helenbeedhamcom slash 2022 reading challenge. I hope the list will inspire your own reading habits and choices, and I'd love to hear on social media whether you've picked up any of those titles, and if so, how you found them. Also, any recommendations you have, I've got several weeks still to pick a book for, so all suggestions will be gratefully received. I'm finding that if I read for half an hour a day, every day, I can read the book in a week fairly comfortably without speed reading. That said, Half of a Yellow Sun is a pretty chunky 433 pages, and I am a little behind already. (laughs) Next week's non-fiction book will be The Power of Habit, why we do what we do and how to change, and it's by Charles Duhigg. Even bigger news than my new reading challenge is that this week something very exciting happened, and that was the arrival of my advance author copies of my business book, The Future of Time. Opening the boxes was such an exciting moment and I'm thrilled with how the book looks and how all the ideas, insights, examples and arguments are set out. I can't wait to share it with you all. Launch day is in four weeks time on Monday the 28th of February. You can pre-order the paperback for £14.99 now, or if you want the e-book, wait to buy the Kindle edition for just 99p on launch day itself. It will go back to full price, which is £7.99 for the e-book the following day. So don't forget to mark the date in your diary. The book may hit the shelves a little ahead of the 28th of February. And I'm running a time limited competition to win a free signed copy. If you spot a copy in your local bookshop in the next three weeks, take a photo and post it on Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram, tagging me and using the hashtag #TheFutureOfTime. future of time. The deadline to participate is the end of Friday the 18th of March. The winner will be drawn at random and notified on Saturday the 19th of March. And details are on the website www.thefutureoftime.co.uk Right, it is now time to meet this week's podcast guest and hear how she manages her time at work, what changes she's leading in her organisation and some very wise advice drawn from her own stellar career. Hi, this week, I'm talking to Winnie Dusvegg. Winnie is head of global organization development at Novartis, the pharmaceutical and medicines company, where she leads their team of OD experts in developing the way the organization works, its culture and its people. Winnie's career has taken her around the world and she has lived in the Netherlands, London, Texas, and now Basel. She previously held senior OD roles in the global oil company Shell and at Pitney Bowes, the global shipping and mailing business. And she started her career in management consulting at Towers Perrin, now Willis Towers Watson. In fact, Winnie and I started there at the same time in 1997, me in London and Winnie in the Netherlands. We met on our induction day and mm-hmm. we've been friends ever since, so it's such a pleasure to have her as my guest in this first series of the podcast and to chat together about her impressive career. Welcome to the business of being brilliant, Winnie.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Ellen, and it's lovely to see you. It makes me feel old, those dates that you're rattling off.
0: <laughs> we've I know. known each other a long time, haven't we? Yes, we can probably <laughs> debate off the podcast whether we're mid-career or late-career. <laughs> but, it does feel like we've done a lot together mm. and separately since 1997. Yeah, and, and obviously I know you very well, but our listeners may be hearing you for the first time. So to give them a sense of who you are, could you share three words that you would use to describe yourself?
1: So it depends a bit on the three words that describe me and my relations to others, which is partly a mum of three children. Uh, A friend, including of my husband, and I'm hearing from my colleagues, a leader (laughs) as well. So those are kind of the roles I play in terms of more me as a person at work, I guess at home as well, is fairly driven, fairly committed to what I do. Optimistic. I like to keep a glass half full. Otherwise, what's the point of doing organization development work, right? And I like not to take myself too seriously. So I like to do things with a bit of a twinkle and a smile and a sense of humor. So yeah. oh, more than brilliant. three
0: words. That's great. Thank you. And have you always been driven? Or is that something that you think emerged as
1: you got stuck into your career? I think I've always been driven. I've always had high standards for myself and as a result for other people as well. I think that there's a hint of perfectionism in there and driven to make things better for other people and for myself as well. So it's not driven to drive a career per se or to keep getting promotions, but driven to improve stuff.
0: Yeah, that's great that that's been behind you as you've worked and moved from role to role. And so when you think back about those different stages in your career, when do you think you have flourished most in your career? Is there a particular time that springs to mind? And if mm. so,
1: what was it that made that possible? That's a good question because... It makes me think about all the various jobs that I've done and and what was common about them. And I, I think mostly flourishing was when there was something big and chunky to be done, something to really wrap your arms around, something that was just on the edge of my capabilities where I thought, yeah, I can do this, but there was sufficient learning in there and a hint of nervousness that makes you stay open and listen to advice from other people, keep a curious mind, but with enough confidence that I can put my arms around it. So uh, doing something big and challenging and chunky, usually supported by a manager that's given me the space to do it. So I I tend to do well without helicopter management. If I think back about the many projects and jobs that I've done, what's also enabled me a lot is my husband. Where at home, we've been pretty 50-50. So at the beginning of each week, we tend to figure out, well, who's got what on? And there's been times in big and chunky projects that he's been able to step up a bit more. That also gives sort of the emotional support and the bandwidth to, to, do, to do the job well. So yeah, I think flourishing, it's been enabled by other people. Someone that trusted me to pick up a big challenge, someone that's trusted me to crack on with it, uh, a buddy to work with, usually in a, in a function that's complementary to mine, mm-hmm. like communications, for example, or someone in HR or someone in business strategy. Somebody to spar with, yeah it's it's mostly those characteristics, not not a particular moment that I could point yeah. to that's so interesting
0: to hear and and you're right, it's so important to have the right kind of support around you at home mm. and at work, so whether it's an encouraging manager who, as you say, really trusts that you can take a leap, be yeah. ready for the next bit of stretch in the role. Yeah giving you the space to do that Mm -hmm. uh, and then having all the great support at home as well. There's that fine balance between getting a bit out of your comfort zone uh, and being stretched but not being thrown in at the deep end without
1: any life support. Yes, it's helpful to have uh, some oh shit moments. But the oh shit moments shouldn't be too long and too deep. <laughs> it cracks your confidence. Yeah,
0: that's yeah. a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, Because we all run into them, right? Some are worse than others. In some yeah. of them, we have the tools and the support we need to deal with it, you know, yeah. and learn from it and grow. And other times we might not tick all those boxes. And that's probably yeah. when it becomes a really painful
1: experience. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So has there ever been a time at work for you when things have felt really tough or hard going?
1: And what did you take from that experience? Of course, yes. And mostly it's when I get in my own way. (laughs) I remember a time when I got promoted to a big job and I I worked with a very senior leader in one of my past companies and I was a little bit in awe with this person. And I felt a little bit like, what kind of value could I possibly add to this person? And as a result, I I didn't really step up. I kind of got in my own way. And it wasn't until the person actually invited me along uh, actually it was a Christmas dinner with the leadership team that he invited me to as well which is like oh my god he sees me as one of the team this is quite impressive I'd never really realized this Uh, and then somebody else in the leadership team also made a comment about why wasn't I picking up the phone to him because they would be so interested in talking to me and I was like talk to me really clearly they think I have something to say So this phase of uh, me getting into my own way, of not feeling so confident, having some doubts about what value did I have to add, I kind of learned that it was pretty self-imposed, unfortunately. And I got in my own way because I limited my own impact through that. Uh, So I kind of learned through uh, those colleagues, those clients, a little bit of swagger without taking yourself too seriously. Like I said at the beginning, a bit of swagger and a bit of confidence is important. A little bit of claiming the space. If you're yeah. working in an expert role, like I have done over the years, you need to think through, well, what is the expertise that you bring and where does it come from? It needs to come from within. That's great advice. That's really good because I think
0: so many people suffer from that inner critic. I know I do. where yeah. You have that little voice in your head saying, who are you to rock up and yeah. sit around this table? And Or yeah. to to, as you say, even just pick up the phone to someone that you're slightly in awe of and maybe don't see yourself yeah. on the same level in terms of peers but yes they may be seeing you so differently it's good that you had that little nudge from those conversations yeah. with others to look at the situation from their point of view instead of just your own point of
1: view yeah exactly and it links to a piece of advice that someone gave me years ago and I remember exactly the moment that they told me on and what they said and where it was But I I joined one of those large companies that consists of thousands of people. And I felt very much like a small radar in the machine. Very insignificant one, actually, because people in that company had all been there for years. Like they started out there as a graduate. They grew up together and I joined a little bit later in my career. So I felt like I couldn't really catch up with them because they'd had so many years together, building relationships, getting to know each other and the whole company and the culture so much longer than me. And then the person told me well the reason that you were brought into this company is because you offer something different so you don't need to compete with other people to be more similar to them it's actually better to stay a little different to have mm. something unique uh, and it's clearly at the heart of I, obviously but it's also very personal and it taught me that i didn't need to be the same as all those other people because i well first of all i couldn't catch up with them anyway but secondly The reason I was there was to bring something different that they didn't already have. Yeah, so that's given me some confidence, uh, I suppose.
0: That's great advice. It's such a a good reminder that we need to believe in ourselves and in the unique perspectives and experience that we've got that's different to the people around
1: us. Well, and what's hard about this is that it's easy to say easy to tell someone, oh, you need to appreciate your own uniqueness. But in my case, it hit home after I experienced it after this leadership team that were working in finance and was like, I can't possibly add any value to them until I realized, well, actually, my job is not to do finance because that's their job. My job is to help them organize their own function better and to engage their people better. And that's something that I'm uniquely qualified for. So sometimes those lessons are a bit painfully gained. At least in my case, they were. It's, like I said, easier said than done. And I sometimes tell my kids as well that you don't need to compete with other kids in your classroom and your unique self. But Mm. it's hard to go beyond just words until you've experienced it. It takes many years to really take that in. I'm still practicing that one now.
0: So, yeah, yeah, it's hard to expect children to get it straight away, the confidence. And so you juggle a full time role. Your husband also works, and you have three children. Um, And you've moved around the world quite a lot. Yeah. So I'm dying to ask this question. How do you organize your time? (laughs) Because I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot. What are the habits that work for you? And I'm talking mainly here about how you organize your time at work when you're in Mm -hmm. a senior leadership role. There's no doubt more stuff going on than you can ever really get a handle on or or, or accomplish and lots of demands
1: as a leader and a manager. So what works for you? Where do you find things for? Well, still looking for the magic formula, but there's a few things that I've I've found work better than others. First of all, I've established a few rules. I, I try to stick to the no work in the weekend rule. I don't have a problem to work some evenings in the week. I get a bit irritated if it's every evening in the week, but a few, I don't mind. Uh, So I try to limit the time. Like there's work and there's life, you know, they can blend a bit. It's fine. But I need enough, recuperation time and Mm -hmm. time for me and for the family. That's not work, which is the weekend. Then I also block as much as possible early in the day and end of the day and lunchtime so that I have some time to just read messages. And there's, there's a few more operational things about how to block time in the day. And then I think ahead of time, year ahead, who are the sorts of people that I need to talk with regularly? And is it weekly, bi-weekly, monthly? What does the schedule look like? And then I schedule it slightly on the edge of light that I just feel a little uncomfortable, like, oh, I could really talk to them more often. So rather Mm -hmm. than every two weeks, I do every three weeks. Or every month, I do every six weeks. And then if something important comes up, I want to have enough flexibility in my schedule to be able to pick up the phone and just have ad hoc conversations. So schedule the regular cadence a little light, all to make sure that I have enough working time in the day and in the week to just create blocks of time to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes you have to do something that just takes thinking time, like know, organize a workshop or write a report. So I, I try to keep enough blocks of time to do chunks of work. So I think those are my more operational tips. And then the more mindset-like is around, am I really needed? Is this really important right now? Who is this meeting or piece of work for? Is it for me or is it to benefit someone else? And, and what is therefore the role that I can play with on my own time commitment, such that I still meet the needs of someone else uh, without mm-hmm. it costing an arm and a leg? Mm. That's so interesting yeah. to hear. It sounds like
0: not only have you put in place a, a few habits that you find work well for you, but also yeah. that you're very intentional every yeah, day about yeah. your use of time, which is yeah. fantastic. And, you know, obviously about the book, The Future Mm -hmm. of Time, that's coming out at the beginning of March, and how in it, I talk about how our time culture at work is broken. And by time Mm -hmm. culture, I mean our collective attitudes and beliefs and norms and behaviours around how we think about time, how we manage our time at work, how we talk about it, and how we spend it. And my argument is that we have these time norms, these cultural norms Mm -hmm. around time. It's all based around speed and urgency, 24-7 availability and operating, but also often highly fragmented work time and very blurry boundaries. Our working time has stretched and become quite amorphous. Does that sound familiar to you or have you experienced different time norms?
1: Unfortunately, it is familiar. I've worked in the types of companies where I've been surrounded by pretty competent people, and I tend to be not the only one that's fairly driven. And that collective effect creates this, this, I wouldn't say a pressure to perform, but people take responsibility to get the work done. It's not about how much time am I spending here, about attendance or being visibly at work. It's more about, I want to be seen to be doing important things that matter and I want to make a difference. In most of the companies that i've been part of that looking like quite long working hours mm. of course there's always the next emergency and yeah? like you say the speed and the urgency of stuff it's fairly relentless so that's hard and the problem is that it impacts almost performance in the wrong way because if you're working longer hours and fairly fragmented from one, one meeting to another topic to another workshop about something else again it's harder to focus and to just get something done and there's this fragmentation about bitty bitty focus, yeah. I would call it. It's very inefficient.
0: We end up with lots of little bits of wasted time when we're transitioning between yeah. pieces of work or yeah. we get to the end of the day and we realise we've been so busy responding to stuff that's been incoming that we haven't done yeah. the really important bit of work we wanted to do. Ends up uh, being in the evening, in my case. Which then yeah. really impacts our sense of well-being and, and having yeah. a life outside yeah. of work. What do you hear other... People say, do you feel in the organizations you've worked in that that's been a fairly common experience, or is there something else that is stopping people
1: from really flourishing in their careers? Well, with COVID, particularly, and in large global companies, there's a couple of things that you hear all the time, which is around too many hours on the screen, mm-hmm. not enough social lubricant. If you never meet each other and if you can't spend time in person, it becomes much harder to work yeah. well together so that the social lubricant is missing. In terms of global companies, I hear a lot about the time zones, clearly. Somebody in my team in China or in the US uh, and in Europe, if we want to meet together as a team, some people are always going to have to start at the crack of dawn and some people are always on the phone late into the evening. And I suppose in large global companies that gets taken as a fact of life and it's not always fair. There's ways around it, but it takes a bit of extra effort that uh, people need to be willing to make. And then the final thing, more particular to my role, is that the company I work in now is fairly initiative-rich. People get out of bed in the morning to make a difference. They're very di- driven by the diseases that they want to cure, the patients that they want to support in this medicine company. And it, it drives people to work pretty hard and uh, pretty committed, but not enough taking the time to look left and right to see what colleagues are working on yeah. and what they could glean from each other. And where they could be a bit more efficient if they did something together or if they were willing to copy something from another country or another function, for instance. So that drive creates a bit of silo focus, in my view, with not enough time taken to learn from what colleagues are already working on. Yeah. So it's almost a self-imposed inefficiency in how time is spent. A mistaken belief that me spending my time on my deliverables is more efficient than me taking the time to ask a colleague for a bit of input first.
0: That's so true. And it is a particular challenge of a big global organization that might have many business units and have quite a complex or matrix structure. How do you get people clearly focused on what they need to be delivering, but also aware of what people are working on outside of their own team? And and there's always that tension. Something I write about in the book is about the need to be not just smart and thoughtful and intentional about our own time habits, but also Mm -hmm. about understanding the impact of our choices on other people. And whether that's when we choose to go online and be in contact with people, or when we choose to do deep work, deadlines we request of others. I think that talks to your second point about understanding the bigger picture and joining up the dots, because what we each do, is interconnected and the more yeah. that we can encourage yeah. enough conversation about how we're spending our time and what we're spending it on and what the collective priorities are then that yeah. would help just pull our heads out of the sand a little bit more often yeah. to to make adjustments
1: and to join yeah. up those conversations exactly and that takes the same fluffy word of mindset to some extent usually shaped by a positive experience what we're doing in my company at the moment is a new performance management system has been implemented. It's called Evolve, and it looks much more at the impact that we're trying to have Mm -hmm. on patients, on each other, on the business, as opposed to making effort or just being active. And it comes with a regular cadence of setting some big, bold objectives and sharing them with each other, but also a quarterly check-in not just on what's the work that we're doing, but also how we're doing. Uh, And I find that pretty helpful. It's better than the mid-year review and the year-end review, which you do on a one-to-one basis. It's more team-based. And I try and make sure that we do this across teams as well. So I find this quite a helpful improvement in our business. That sounds a great example of just finding
0: ways with the rhythm of the work to keep connecting, keep talking and... yeah. And fascinating to hear how you're thinking differently about performance management, but something else I was writing about yeah. in the book about how in the past and, and in many organizations still, performance management is more about the activity and the time you've been putting in and what you've been spending time on. Mm-hmm. And it's quite input focused as opposed yeah. to outcome focused.
1: The big switch that we've made is the word impact and an impact on not just on yourself and your own job, but impact on the people around you. The ones close by in your team, but also clearly your customers or people in the broader community. So the traditional, did you do a good job and did you fulfill your objectives? Yes. And did you behave? Did you normal the behaviors that we want to encourage in the company? Yes. And what was the result? What was the impact of this on people around you? That's great that you take it that third step and and really look at the
0: outcome and the results out of that. Well, good luck with embedding that into the organisation. It sounds quite a shift that you're helping people to get used to. So is there a particular resource, a book or a talk or a podcast that you have found really helpful in your line of work and in your
1: career that you would recommend to others? Probably too many to mention over time. I I particularly like tech talks because they are insightful and long enough to get something really interesting and meaningful out of them, but they don't take hours. But I think my main top tip that I've taught myself would be to drop FOMO, to drop the fear of missing out and to really switch off sometimes. I have a folder of stuff that I should read, watch or listen to, and it's overflowing. There's always much more to learn and read than I'm able to do yeah. so <laughs> I've had to teach myself to just relax about it
0: yeah
1: I don't need to feel FOMO about all of the th- things I should be reading and watching uh, and it's sometimes really helpful to just really switch off properly
0: that's a great tip yeah. but it sounds like it's something you have learned to do really well which is actually say right that's it yeah. I'm just downing tools and whatever yeah. it was that I should read and it's yeah. interesting that we tell ourselves a lot of shoulds but that maybe you'd like to read it's just gonna to have to wait another day yeah. and maybe yeah. one day i might get round to it and there will be yeah. some things we won't get round to it
1: and if another person reminds me of this great article then i'll make an extra effort to look at it for sure
0: yeah nudges um, it up doesn't it yeah. up your list yeah. <laughs> your radar <laughs> yes right yeah. oh they're such good suggestions and if people have enjoyed listening to you and hearing about the works that you do how can mm-hmm. they connect with you after the podcast probably the easiest on
1: on LinkedIn I would say
0: brilliant well thank you so much Winnie it's been such a pleasure talking to you both personally for me to have Likewise. this time together yeah. to hear about your career it's been fantastic to catch mm. up in that way but also for our listeners thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing your experiences and, and tips there's so much food for thought that I think will help other people flourish in their careers as well so thank you for being brilliant and joining us.
1: Same to you Helen and uh, just really enjoyed looking through what you've been writing about and all the interesting concepts that you're talking about so really best of luck when it comes to March launching it all. Thank you I'll be letting the world know. (laughs)
0: Thanks Winnie. I loved having that conversation with Winnie and hearing her reflect on her career experiences. She shared some great time habits both the practical things she does but also her mindset and the questions she repeatedly asks herself about her own time choices. It's so true that if we consciously make that extra effort to lift our heads up from our own workload and deadlines to understand better what others are working on, then we can connect the dots and work together so much more efficiently. Perhaps that's something you could ask yourself this week. Am I lifting my head up enough? How could my work and my impact benefit from a conversation with someone else? And who might that someone else be? I also loved Winnie's positivity when she talked about having a glass half full and not taking ourselves too seriously, no matter how driven we are, to change things for the better. That positivity has a ripple effect. It rubs off on other people and it helps to create... really enriching work and team environment. Looking back on my years of work, the experiences that stand out and the people I remember are often the ones most full of fun. Positivity like this helps build our social bonds so that when we do come across those oh shit moments at work or in life, we know we can lean on others to help us through. In next week's episode... I'm speaking with Professor Conson Locke. Conson teaches Leadership, Organisational Behaviour, Negotiation and Decision Making at the London School of Economics and she is the author of Making Your Voice Heard, How to Own Your Space, Access Your Inner Power and Become Influential. She shares some fantastic advice about how to think more creatively and how to manage our negative emotions at work. Right. I'm off to claim my space and practice my swagger. See you next week for another conversation about the business of being brilliant.